Hey everybody, this is Armando Torres, and you're listening to the show before the show. And I'm Paige Wesley. And with us we have... Andrea Gazetta! Yay! Yay! Andrea took a second because she was playing Pokemon. Accurate. It's fine. She needs it because, hey guys, we're going to put this right up top. Trigger warning, this one is rough. It's rough. It's, It's a rough one. It's a rough one. The first, I would say three quarters of it pretty funny pretty lighthearted, pretty nazi making fun of uh pretty fun times the last bit of it though oh boy full-blown anthill kids up in this bitch uh yep i'm real it's sorry rough. about it um it's funny that it's like we could say like oh no it's fine it's just white supremacy for the first part and then it gets bad <laughs> yeah 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 but before we get started we've got uh some news and reviews first of all as you guys un- <laughs> there's no way you don't fucking know about it we're doing a live show yay we're live we're doing a live show in san diego at the comedy palace on june 29th at 7 30 p.m it's it's gonna be such a blast it's gonna be so much fun it's great it's an hour and a half of uh some of the best research and jokes we've ever crafted uh it's about the chicago rippers they rip through pizza crusts which is tough to do because it's deep dish so deep it's it's a really great episode it's a fun time you guys are gonna super enjoy watching it with other cult podcast members members listeners listeners please stop calling our fans members (laughs) (laughs) give me all your money i don't want to be on a list (laughs) i for sure am with all of this (laughs) I I, i basically for the last two weeks every google search that i've ever done could be just summed up as jews bad question mark because of this fucking cult I mean, I wish we could make a list of, like, best cult podcasts, because there's been, like, 12 of those. We've made none of them. (laughs) Maybe we suck. Um, Yeah, but here to tell you that we don't suck, we've got a five-star review. Yay! This one's pretty short. Uh, The subject line is, I'm Charles Manson, and I approve this podcast. Uh, and this one comes to us from, it's pronounced Leela. <laughs> they just put it right there. Like Taranga Leela? Yeah. 400 thumbs up. Wait, 400 thumbs up, and then it's attributed to spiders. So I don't know if I'm supposed to read that <laughs> as Manson. How many? Okay, if spiders have eight arms, that okay. means they would have eight thumbs. Okay. 40 divided by eight is 50? Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's 50 spiders giving us all of their thumbs up at once. That's pretty good. And my nightmare. That is absolutely... <laughs> I was going to say. I did math. I'm so proud of myself. I saw a spider in my house the other day, and I almost moved out. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, we've got a great episode for you guys. If you want tickets to that live show, you can go to coltpodcast.com slash San Diego, or you can go to coltpodcastshow.com and then go over to the shows page. Yeah, tickets are $10 now, $15 at the door. But we love you, and now we want to give you a great episode. So get on in here, and seriously, get fucking just a a, a teddy bear or something, or your uh, Mondo Torres white supremacy plush pillow. Um, if you need a hug after this one and you come to the live show, I promise to hug you. We promise we will all hug you. Bring God. unicorns. Also, if you come to the live show, you might be the first to peep some... Brand new merch for our Patreon, which is coming soon. Yay, but you guys will get to see it first at the live show. Hell yeah. So without further ado, nope, that's not how you say the no words. No more Scooby-Doo. <laughs> with, the, with no more Scooby-Doo. Welcome to Cold Podcast. Jinkies. Hello. Hello. 
crikey. Wait. <laughs> Don't drink the Kool-Aid. For the purposes of this podcast, we define a cult as organizations that rally behind an entity or leader who espouse beliefs outside the norm. Organizations that require physical or monetary sacrifice as a condition of membership. Organizations in which the doctrines followed by the leaders are different than that of the followers. Organizations in which isolation is encouraged either by commune living or by a policy of disconnection from outside relationships. And organizations that actively recruit new members. All cults might have some or all of these traits, and as always... These are our opinions. Thank you for tuning into Cult Podcast. I'm Paige Wesley. And I'm Armando Torres. And with us we have... Andrea Gazzetta! Yay! And it's Armando's week again! Yes, it's my week again. We're doing the Compound Dwellers Part 2! Part 2! Yeah, so before we get into it, I just want to give the sources for this episode. They're pretty much the same... Um, with the addition of one book that I bought two days ago called Evil Harvest, The True Story of Cult Murder in the American Homeland by Rod Colvin. I think Evil Harvest is the least menacing name <laughs> for a book about true crime that I've ever heard in my entire life. Well, we don't got all this harvest. We got to cut it down before it goes bad. That is that corn. That's a bad, that's an evil harvest. That's evil corn. That's I mean, bad we think corn. children of the corn is the evil harvest. Yeah, I we, as soon as you said evil harvest, I just pictured a Halloween night in a tractor for some reason, a very sexy tractor, <laughs> or like the Wicker Man, because they're like killing people for the harvest. That's Hold kind up. of an evil harvest. Pin in the thing. Real quick, sexy tractor. Are you talking about a woman who's dressed as a sexy tractor? <laughs> or, or are you talking about a tractor with a really scantily clad bikini on? No, we should be no, we should be tractors for Halloween, but we'll be like sexy tractors? <laughs> like, I'm a skid loader. <laughs> you're a backhoe because you're such a hoe. <laughs> you're a backhoe because you did anal that one time and I found out about it. <laughs> I might be an attractor, but I'm trying to get plowed tonight. <laughs> Mr. Plow, that's the name. That name again is Mr. Plow. Anyway, Evil Harvest, the story of uh, tractors getting plowed in American homeland by Rod Colvin. <laughs> A real life story of crisis tractors. <laughs> So, just to give you guys a recap of what happened last week, previously on Cold Podcast. In 1982, at the age of 34, Michael Ryan joined a white supremacist sovereign citizen group called the Posse Comitatus. The Posse taught him that a battle between whites and non-whites would soon usher in the apocalypse. Yeah, it's called football and whites lose every time. (laughs) (laughs) After mistaking a team building exercise for a sign that he was a prophet... Michael used the arm test to convince a small group of followers to move in with him on the Stice family farm in Rulo, Nebraska. No, but like, try to move my arm right now. You can't. You can't do it. Try to move it. Hold on. I'm going to keg stand later. Try to move my arm right now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now the next way that I found out how to talk to God is it's called a trust fall. And if I catch you, (laughs) if I catch you, it means yes. And if I drop you, it means no. Or everybody hold hands in the center to make the human knot because this is how we find out about God's plan for our lives. All right, so here's how I found out about God's plan. Zip! <laughs> Zap! 
Zop. Oh, no, that means God wants us all to die. Okay. Here's how I found out. I, I wrote the names of historical figures on all these three by five cards. You got to put one on your head and then try to guess who you are. You can't look at the card. God, we should start our own seminar. <laughs> we just teach improv. It's fine. So before we continue, we're going to have to take like sort of a small step back. This, we're going to start in 1983, and we're not going that far back, and I don't want you to get confused. In 1983, the same year Michael Ryan moved his followers onto the compound, a few events solidified his belief that the upcoming Great War between whites and non-whites was coming soon. And it all started with the manhunt for Gordon Call. On February 13th, 1983, U.S. Marshals tried to arrest Gordon Call as he and his family were leaving a posse comitatus meeting in North Dakota. Hanging out with other convicted felons was a violation of Gordon's parole. But when the Marshals attempted to pull Gordon over, they found that he had more pressing parole violations to deal with. Gordon Call was very well armed. And I'm not talking like he was buff. <laughs> How many do you have? Two? <laughs> <laughs> Or did he have a bunch of bear arms in the back? <laughs> Sir, you're going to have to pull over? <laughs> pull over? What about this? Tickets <laughs> to the gun show. This is all natural, baby. <laughs> all I can see is Machoke, or Machamp from, Machamp from, from Pokemon. Pokemon. He's got six arms. Yeah, he. I, wanna, I don't want to break your headcanon, but he's not like that. <laughs> he's just a very skinny, scrawny piece of shit. So how is he, he also in a Speedo, though? No. Damn it. How was he able to steal arms from all those bears? <laughs> <laughs> it's a Second Amendment right. <laughs> the right to bear arms. One, two. Three? Who cares? As, as many bear arms as you want. <laughs> Gordon Call, his son, and a family friend opened fire on the marshals, killing two and injuring three others. The Call family fled the scene and traveled north, but were cut off by law enforcement on the highway. Right there in the road, Gordon provoked a second shootout, killing even more men. After murdering his would-be arresters, Gordon Call left his dying son and friend behind to escape south to avoid capture. Whoa. Wow. What an asshole. Gordon's son was saved by doctors, but was immediately arrested afterwards and is still serving a life sentence in an Illinois prison. How old was his son at the time? His son, I couldn't find out an exact age, but based off of pictures, he looks like he's in his mid-twenties. Okay, I I was picturing like 12, like Carl from The Walking (laughs) Dead, and I was just like, whoa. (laughs) He just got his daddy's hat on. He's like, Carl! Just... (laughs) With Gordon on the run, a massive manhunt was organized to find him. After a few weeks, a tip came in that Gordon was hiding in a posse comitatus member's house in Arkansas. When a U.S. Marshal arrived at the home, Gordon Call popped out from behind a fridge and both he and the Marshal fired shots simultaneously. The Marshal was fatally wounded after being shot in the heart. However, his shot struck Gordon Call directly in the head and killed him instantly. Yes. The marshal managed to make it to his cruiser before collapsing and gasping his final words. I got him. Fuck. Gordon Call might not have lived to see the courtroom, but there's no doubt a judge would have ruled that the marshal was shot through the heart and you're <laughs> to blame. You give whites a bad name. <laughs> Fuck. I, I, the whole time you were talking about that, I was like, this doesn't sound anything like the manhunt at Fubar, <laughs> where they take everyone in the back and fluff them and then take Polaroids of everyone's dicks and string them on a clothesline and the people pick the winner. <laughs> 
This guy would lose. I'm going to be honest Ooh, with you. Following- so he wasn't heavily armed? <laughs> he may have been heavily armed, but he was weakly dicked. <laughs> so he wasn't packing in the right place. <laughs> I mean, give me that extra pair of socks. <laughs> Let's just say his Ruger 14 wasn't the only thing that was mini. Hey, oh, that's a gun joke. <laughs> I only know about many Rugers because I spent so long reading about white supremacists. He had more of like an (laughs) AK-3. Following the initial two shootouts in North Dakota, James Wickstrom, the angrier, tinier, dancier version of Elton John. (laughs) Hey, that's impossible. How is he dancier? He's just dancing around on stage being like, I don't like anyone that's not white. He doesn't have rhythm because he's a piece of shit. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I was like, was that purposeful? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. I thought he didn't have rhythm because he was white, I assumed. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Goodbye, everyone brown. (laughs) You can't live in our compound. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have to make an album called That's What I Call Cult Music. (laughs) I really do want all the clips of the songs that Paige comes up with. (laughs) Following the two shootouts in North Dakota, James Wickstrom was scheduled to appear on the Phil Donahue show. And on national television, the Posse Comitatus' most open member was going to defend both the Posse and Gordon Call. Gross. Michael Ryan took the death of Gordon Call as a sign. Satan was at work, and the battle drew nearer and nearer. He, along with countless other Americans watching Donahue, saw James Wickstrom announce that the second coming of Jesus was soon to arrive in the nearby sovereign citizen township of Tigerton Dells, Wisconsin. Honey, Satan wants to keep this bazooka out of my hands, and I cannot let that happen. I cannot abide the devil. Yes, I will take extra bullets. (laughs) So this is worth uh, noting because Andrea is currently trying to Google Tigerton Dells, Wisconsin, to see if she grew up near there. Tigerton Dells is a township, which is basically the evolution of a compound, uh, a sovereign citizen township that he created. Oh, okay. So oh it's my not. God, it's north of Green Bay. It might as well not exist. <laughs> I, so it's Canada? Oh, actually, it's near my mom's hometown. Oh, okay. When we left Michael Ryan last, he was moving onto the Stice Farm after its foreclosure in 1983. Along with Michael, his wife Ruth, and their three children was a small group of dedicated followers. Firstly, there was the former owners of the Stice Farm, Rick Stice and his three children. After losing his wife to Hodgkin's lymphoma and his farm to the bank, Rick had nowhere to go and nothing to live for, so he joined Michael on the compound to help him with his mission. I mean, to be fair, why not at that point? I mean, mean, there's a thousand. There's a thousand reasons why, and white supremacy is definitely number one. But, like, (laughs) also, if your whole family died, like, I could 100% see someone being like, yeah, we might as well move on to a compound. Especially because last last week what we talked about was after his wife died, he really just, uh, like, the only community he found was the posse. Yeah. Secondly was James Haverkamp's family. James was Michael's first devoted follower who indoctrinated his family into the Christian identity movement over Christmas with propaganda tape he got from Michael. He, along with his mother and father and sister Cheryl, moved on to the compound too. Cheryl Gibson, his uh, James Haverkamp's sister, was the woman who became convinced through the arm test that her marriage to her husband, Lester Gibson, wasn't authorized under the eyes of Yahweh. So, when Michael took the next steps to prepare his flock, 
Cheryl and her five j- children joined him. I think it was just because his name was Lester. That you're just that's, like, that's I can't, probably right. I can't be seen in public. <laughs> Lester Gibson is kind of a good guy, which is something we'll get into a little bit later, but he's also like <sighs> Every time I hear the name Lester, I think of Lester's Possum Park. <laughs> from what? what? From the Goofy movie? Oh. oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lester's Possum Park. It's hard to be a good guy when your name is Lester. Yeah, cuz it rhymes with Mo Lester. Oh, that's fair. I just meant because less is literally in your name. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mo Lester. Mo, Mo Money, Mo Lester. Okay. <laughs> I'm done. I mean, that's how it worked with the Catholic Church. Hey! Oh! Hey! Hey! Get it, girl. So these are the main players in our story. But there were about 10 other members who were either related to the other followers or members of Posse Comitatus who relocated to Rulo after a different compound in Kansas was raided by police earlier in 1983. Because this compound in Rulo is like one of 20 different compounds in the tri-state area. Gross. Although Michael commanded, in total, 10 men four women, and 16 children. His flock was small, but when they moved onto the compound, they were all fully devoted. Now, last week we covered how the radicalization of white Midwesterners was due to the production changes that came after World War II. That was probably the most boring sentence you've ever heard in your entire fucking life. Basically, the change in agriculture, along with new Soviet embargoes during the Cold War, continued and led to the 1980s farm crisis, which is translated as like, if you want to piss off the Midwest, just fuck with crops. That's all you got to do to make white Midwesterners mad. Google corn spider. What? No. Hold on. Nope. 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 Nope, don't do it. Don't Google it. I Googled it for you. You don't have to do it. Spiders are terrifying, and now I have a reason to never go to the Midwest again. Thank you for that. Oh, we called them banana spiders. But you guys don't have any bananas. Yeah, but they're yellow like a banana. They're cute. They're yellow or, like they're corn. They're really like corn. No, they're really nice. Stop showing me pictures of spiders. No, we have these in our garden. Stop showing me pictures. They of... eat all the mosquitoes. I don't care. I'm okay. fine with mosquitoes. I hate spiders. But they're really nice. No, there's no nice spiders, okay? There's no nice spiders. You can call me a racist all you want. There's no nice spiders. You're a spiderist. Yeah, that's fine. Fuck a spider. I mean, don't, because then you'd have to get close to it. That's fair. <laughs> if you want to read all about my hatred of spiders, you can go to my web site. <laughs> really? My Boo! web site. We have so many arms. <laughs> Yeah, they're, spiders are really the only ones who are truly well-armed. <laughs> hey! <laughs> yeah, of those fuckers. <laughs> All right, anyway. But while this may have led farmers to the sovereign citizen movement, the whole driving force behind compounds like the one in Rulo was the promise of war. Because at the time, 80% of the Posse Comitatus were veterans of either World War II, the Korean War, or the Vietnam War. Ooh. Terrifying. Cool. So just like PTSD, mix it in there a little bit. Yo, we got the right to bear arms, not bear ears, fuckers. (laughs) Some of these members included former Green Berets and Army Rangers, and these angry veterans were chomping at the bit to get back into the action. So after James Wickstrom's appearance on Donahue and his following guest spot on The Larry King Show, the racist rocket man, James Wickstrom, held... (laughs) Thank you. He held weekend retreats at his township, Tigerton Dells, Wisconsin. He's basically hosting racist summer camps, by the way. 
Hey, Cletus, are you still a virgin? No, I got a girlfriend now. You don't know her. She goes to a different compound. You wouldn't. <laughs> you wouldn't she's super white, though. I just want to let you know. Hey, I, I saw some guy running around in a ski mask with a machete. Machete? Give him a gun. This is America. <laughs> they're making s'mores, but they're leaving the chocolate out. <laughs> That's the best part. It's a white-only s'more. Your lanyards can only be red, white, and blue. And they better not be in the shape of the French flag. <laughs> They only use white chocolate, which is an abomination. We can all agree, It's not right? real chocolate. No, it's, it's disgusting. Not. Here, posse members could take classes in warfare from the angry veterans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back in my day, we had to dodge the mustard gas. They don't use it anymore, but try throwing these rocks. Psst. Psst. James, I'm thinking about cutting third period bomb making. <laughs> you down? Nah, man, nah. I got latrine digging after that. (laughs) So now when they weren't attending hours-long seminars on why you should stop paying your taxes, because that was a real thing. The majority of the summer camps, I shouldn't say summer camps, the weekend retreats were just about, you'd show up, you'd hang out on the compound, and they'd be like, how y'all feeling tonight? And then everyone would get pumped up and they'd be like, who wants to stop paying your taxes? And everyone would be like, what? I thought we were going to start a war. And he's like, can't start a war if don't stop paying your taxes. Which, like, if you enjoy driving on roads and shit, pay your damn taxes. Oh, for sure. So when they weren't attending seminars or making friendship bracelets with all the white beads, I forgot I wrote that. That's a, just, that's a gift from 12 a.m. Mondo to you guys. Just like weaving swastikas into their friendship bracelets. This is a hate shit bracelet. You're welcome. Friendship, but only white friendship. They make those God's eyes, but with the, the, the arms turned. <laughs> They're like crooked. They're swastika God's eyes. Crafting. Oh, racist crafting is so sad. Uh, so posse members started learning the tactics of guerrilla warfare. They learned how to make homemade tear gas and bombs and how to demoralize and harass the enemy. They basically just went, hey, Vietnam, nice ass. Uh, And how to pull off highly organized kill missions. In the tail end of 1983, right after moving onto the compound, Michael Ryan and two of his devoted followers, James Haverkamp and Rick Stice, attended one of these weekend retreats. James and Rick had seen the tapes. They'd even met James Wickstrom before, but seeing the organized posse prepping for war made them super sure that Michael was right. Haverkamp summer camps. <laughs> now I truly have her camp. Yeah! yeah. This is what I was born for. I have her camp. I have her coffee. <laughs> have her camp. I hardly know her camp. <laughs> nope. On their way home from the weekend retreat, Michael made Rick Stice pull over. He told Rick and James that he needed to talk to Yahweh. And take a wicked shit. <laughs> So Michael and James got out of Rick's Toyota Celica, the official car <laughs> of white Yahweh. supremacy. <laughs> Why the fu- how the fuck are you going to be a white supremacist and use a Japanese car? What the fuck, dude? Really? How the heck are you going to follow someone that says they're God but still drives a Toyota? Oh, no, 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 no. He doesn't own a car. So he's just getting rides in his friend's Toyota Celica. You know, these Japanese cars ride so light it's like you're walking on water. <laughs> God damn it. Michael grabbed James's arm and asked Yahweh two questions. Yahweh, Heavenly Father, is there something you want me to tell these men? James's arm stood straight up. 
<laughs> Yahweh, Heavenly Father, shall I tell them your plans for me? And again, the arm stood straight up. And the men got back into the car, and he told his men the good news. And you know when Michael said he had plans, James's arm wasn't the only thing that was standing straight up. Bam! Oh. White supremacist boners! Please Yahweh, write this fan fiction. Yahweh... Uh, should I get regular beef jerky or teriyaki? <laughs> Yahweh, do they have hot Cheetos at the next stop? Yahweh, is it number one or number two? <laughs> I would more effective than the arm test would have been those uh, the fortune tellers from school. Do you remember? <laughs> Yahweh, should I take over the world? One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Oh, she likes me, guys. That's not what I asked. Yahweh. It. Will I kiss Brandon at lunch? <laughs> uh, Michael told his disciples that he had recently been embodied by the spirit of the archangel Michael, the warring angel of God. That's true. And the spirit had shown Michael his future. The end times were coming, and Michael Ryan would lead the battle of Armageddon, for he was the leader of a new tribe of Israel. Also, the upcoming rest stop only has Pringles, so we might want to go, <laughs> go to the one after. Pringles at a rest stop. What's oh your pop? God. You can't stop. What's your pop? You can't stop. Pringles, they aren't real chips, but they're good. What's your pop? You cannot stop. Why did this happen? <laughs> and you can find that on track 17 of Now That's what I call cult music. <laughs> <laughs> so when Michael returned home to Rulo, he gathered the rest of his flock and told them his revelation. The Great War wouldn't take place in some faraway land in the Middle East. Instead, the place named Armageddon in the Book of Revelations was in fact the wheat fields of Nebraska. I don't disagree. <laughs> it does sound like hell. It is. <laughs> Oh, God, is that a banana slash corn spider? No! no! It's, have, has anyone else made the drive across Nebraska? No. It's very easy because during the day, you feel like you're going to fall asleep because you can't tell if you're actually moving forward because everything looks so much the same. Oh, geez. It's kind of scary. You kind of oh. like, it. this weird thing happened where I like zoned out and then I was like, I lost track of all I time. thought you were going to say it was easy because you're dying to get the fuck out of Nebraska. Yeah, that as well. That as I'm well. sorry, Nebraska, we love you, but come here. I do hear that Omaha is cool. But preparing for the battle was going to take a lot of work, and step one was to prep the compound. And prepping meant that they needed money. However, since the Haverkamps left their feed farm, and the only profitable part of the Stice farm was the now discontinued pig raising, the compound was completely unprofitable. But Michael had a very clever s solution. These monster can nunchucks ain't going to make themselves. <laughs> Michael called it night work. So check this out. Here's the plan. We're all going to get jobs at the Arco. I'm going to go first, and then you can use me as a reference, and then we'll just get a bunch of jobs. <laughs> no, so... So their plan was a hustle, a night hustle. Yeah. So check this out. We will all ride for Uber, all right? So I don't have a car, so I'm going to need to borrow somebody's Toyota Celica. Look, here's the thing. It's not my main gig. I'm just doing it till the Lord comes and it really pays off <laughs> in religious and heavenly dividends. Yeah, Yahweh bless you. My name is uh, Michael Ryan. I'm your postmates. <laughs> 
Did you order this again? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you ordered chocolate. I switched that to white chocolate just because that's what I do, brother. Anyway, no, he called it night work, although most of us know it by its other name, which is stealing. Oh, great. Oh, yeah. So he's a dirty, rotten pig thief. Yeah, dirty, rotten, no good, pig-stealing grandfather, which yeah. is from the movie Holes. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Holes. I call it out a lot. It's a great film and also book. If you've... Now, if you've listened to God's album, now that's what I call Commandments Volume 2. <laughs> Fun bit. Uh, then you may have heard the classic uh, track 8, I believe, which is the, yeah, the 8th commandment. Thou shalt not steal. But according to Michael, the group would be absolved of their sin because they were stealing in the name of God. I'm stealing in the name of Ted. Well, <laughs> you do you then. <laughs> which, I'm sorry, what's your name? It's Ted. <laughs> I'm gone! And then you just run away. <laughs> By the way, if you're a shoplifter listening to this podcast, that's the best like way to get out of uh, 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 loss prevention. Sir, we know that you have socks stuffed inside of your pants. No, I'm stealing it for God! Uh, my sister saw the best one where she watched a lady try to steal a ham at the grocery store. <laughs> and she had like tucked it between her legs and was like trying to waddle out of the store. And then it fell right as she got to the exit. And she was like, who threw this ham at me? I'ma take it, and then just picked the ham oh up and ran. God. That's amazing. That woman had ham that night. She gave birth to a ham. She birthed a ham, and then was like, "Who threw this at me? I'm gonna take it." She got food. Ham over fist. <laughs> ham over fist. <laughs> I hate you. That's pretty ham-fisted. <laughs> <laughs> this is all good. This is all going in now. That's what I call terrible jokes. <laughs> Volume 69. All right, so uh, the night work operations were actually incredibly effective. The plan was to find construction and farming equipment on farms in the neighboring state of Kansas. Then, in the dead of night, Michael Ryan, James Haverkamp, Rick Stice, and a few other men would sneak onto the farms. They would hitch the equipment, you know, like backhoes, tractors, etc., onto one pickup truck. Then, they would corral the farm's cattle into a trailer on the back of another truck. The equipment would be used to fortify the compound, and then, along with the stolen cattle, it'd be sold to buy weapons and supplies. Which, this is a serious crime, because the only thing that uh, these people hold more dear than the sheriff, than the county sheriff, is a cow. We've learned this over and over. Sovereign citizens, they respect the county sheriff, and then the almighty Betsy. That's what it is. They're really mooching off their neighbors (laughs) in Kansas. The thing that really bothers me about this is just that, like, they could steal from corporations, but instead they're stealing from other farmers who are going through a recession. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is farmers living in the Midwest are oftentimes really trusting of everyone because why are you going to steal from your neighbor? And they're really milking that trust. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So this is, I, I want to move into a bit of a speculation zone. So during the night work, the men used military tactics that they learned from the Tigerton Dell summer camp tw- uh, 1985. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I brought my t-shirt. Anyway. So camp they- Tigerton Dells, we hold you in our hearts. And when we think about you, we buy a lot of guns. <laughs> I want to see a movie with Tigerton Dells where they have like a prank war with a neighboring white supremacist camp. <laughs> so they worked in pairs they dressed in full camouflage and each of them was armed with a loaded pistol 90 rounds of ammunition and the instructions never be taken alive 
I didn't realize they made corn camouflage. <laughs> One of my favorite things ever is whenever Jake sees someone in camo, he'll pretend not to see them, no matter where we it. are. That makes me so happy. Yeah. So funny. We used to do that in high school where someone would wear camouflage like pants and we'd be like, oh my God, what happened to your legs? <laughs> Everything from their attire down to crossing state lines was highly organized. But as we learned from last week, Michael Ryan is one stupid motherfucker. So I think that some of the things the trainers at Tigerton Dells were teaching went far beyond just military tactics. As any true crime fan knows, prior to like the 90s, really, serial killers and career criminals could get away with crimes easier because they crossed state lines where jurisdictions didn't cross over. So every time we see one of these posse assholes commit a crime, their first fucking instinct is to immediately head across the state line. Gordon Call did it after murdering law enforcement agents, and now Michael Ryan is doing it in his night work. I think the posse was training a whole new group of terrorist cells that would stir up enough anger to actually cause the fucking war that they were predicting. That's my thought process. Yeah, yeah I agree. That's that sounds, fucking yep. smart and terrifying. Yeah, because it's, like, it's one of those things where... Criminals at the time, they would do it on accident. But these guys are intentionally, like, Gordon calls, after he killed those marshals, his first thought was, like, gotta go to Arkansas. Gotta get as far away as possible from the state of North Dakota. What degree do you think being part of actual wars and having that sort of, like, PTSD feeling of, like, something could go wrong at any moment, like, constantly at you could contribute to creating an enemy when there isn't one. I think that it I think it has a lot to do with that. I think that a lot of these veterans of the time who especially in like the Vietnam War were fighting a war against guerrilla tactics which is not normally how war went down for uh historically and not what they were trained for. So they were truly on edge at all times. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're coming back into society and you don't really know what to do with yourself. But you feel like there could be an enemy. Of course. So yeah. you make an enemy. And I think a lot of these people, they came back to a world that was different and they didn't know there was no face to be angry at. Really, honestly, truly, these people have a reason to be mad at the government. Because the Cold War meant we had Soviet embargoes, which means that we couldn't we couldn't trade agriculture and produce abroad to, to countries like we used to. So we had a huge like overstock of, of crops, which meant that these farmers weren't making any money. So they, this war that they didn't even want to fight was literally causing them to come back and then just be poor. And they didn't know how to be mad at the government properly. So they, they went to meetings where people were like, we hate the government too. And they're like, well, what do we do? And they're like, well, first step is to admit that the government is run by Jews. <laughs> so I, I think it, I think it really does go hand in hand. I think there's a lot of reasons why like certain veterans, maybe not certain veterans. That's probably the wrong term, but the panic mentality can, can attribute. attribute to like finding an enemy when there isn't an enemy. Right. Exactly. Yeah, because I mean that thinking about like why are they just making up these enemies and then you mention how many of them are veterans, it makes sense. But then what's the deal with that lady and her husband and the dude? You know what I mean? Like there are definitely people where you're just like, how did you get sucked into this? I mean, farmers, farmers are angry. Farmers are angry because they're not selling crops and they 
they don't know who to blame. There is really no one to blame. It's just like a faceless, nameless blame. So when they're told that this is part of a long-standing Zionist conspiracy to take down the white man, they it go like, It feels like, like oh. an answer. Yeah, they're like, oh, now I know who to be mad at. Because I now also, I have a reason. I would say never discount boredom. Yeah, boredom is a huge motivator. That's why we need more nightclubs in (laughs) cornfields. I'm just thinking of, I mean, uh, of the people on my Facebook feed who believe crazy shit, most of them are kind of adrift in their lives. Yeah, they're in a they're at a point in life where they have uncertainty and they may not have a confidence in themselves. And I think it's always a lot easier to believe that there's a conspiracy against you than that maybe the problem is you. For sure. Mm. So getting back into it, the night work allowed Michael to build his compound out of the old Stice family farm. He built barracks for the men, an armory, and several points where the living quarters could be defended in a gunfight if needed. Jeez. And speaking of guns, after they sold off their stolen equipment and cattle, the group was able to afford several thousand dollars worth of guns and ammunition and i mean almost an unfathomable amount to us it at one point they went to michael's old house and they found uh, a stockpile of seven thousand dollars worth of bullets and that was like bullets yeah that was like maybe five percent of the bullets they owned wow it's they had a fuck ton of money tied up in guns in all they had about 60 weapons and they had guns hidden in the walls behind the tv even in michael's old house in whiting kansas imagine that episode of mtv cribs by the way just like hey, yo what's up mtv this is my crib um i got guns in the ceiling uh, i got guns in the sink um you see you see that cereal box that's for pop cereal that's a little joke it's guns it's just guns in there pop pop <laughs> and this is where the magic happens. <laughs> These are the bullets. <laughs> <laughs> so step one was complete. And just in time too. Step one. <laughs> you get a bunch of guns. Step two. You hide all of those guns. Step three. You hide those guns from me. <laughs> and I'm trying to remember the, how the rest of that song goes. Now that's what I call cult music. It's available for $17.99. <laughs> Plus shipping and handling. <laughs> I'm just picturing that he had like a Scrooge McDuck pile of bullets. <laughs> and he's diving. <laughs> diving in and out of it. That's, that's fucking hilarious. <laughs> Step one was complete and just in time too. Because in Michael Ryan's mind, the Zionist occupation government was closing in on his posse commentators buddies. Right around the time Michael completed his compound, his mentor, James Wickstrom, was arrested. The way the posse spun it, James Wickstrom had been arrested for trying to stick it to the federal government. He bought a bagel and didn't pay for it. <laughs> but the way the federal government... He just called it night work. This is night, night work! work! Zionist conspiracy makes me want to pay for bagels. Did he say it's night? It's 3.30 p.m. <laughs> we stopped serving bagels at 4. <laughs> Working on my night moves. bagels and guns. Yeah, okay. <laughs> bonus track (laughs) (laughs) the way the federal government put it james wickstrom had been breaking zoning laws by illegally parking his members trailer homes and issuing fake liquor licenses to his friends on behalf of the made-up township of tigerton dells wisconsin fucking zoning laws (laughs) 
They got R. Kelly. They're gonna get you, you pieces of shit. I mean, I'm surprised because these fools seem like they know their way around an auto zone. (laughs) (laughs) So zoning laws should be in your wheelhouse. Regardless of the reasoning, Michael Ryan took it as a sign of the upcoming end times and decided it was time to... Wait, zoning laws are the sign of the end times? (laughs) What's next? Zoning laws? What about Cal zoning laws? It's Tony (laughs) Kansas here! Jesus Christ. Free garlic knots whenever you violate our Cal zoning laws. Our Cal zones are so affordable, it's crazy. Hey, come on down to Tony Kansas. If you want a free pizza, use promo code the end is near. (laughs) The end is beer for a free picture. (laughs) Oh my god. Let's open a pizza place, guys. Fuck this podcast. Let's open a pizza place. I'm gone. I'm buying the pizza place. (laughs) We order pizza every time we record. We could just have a pizza place. Uh, Regardless of the reasoning, Michael took it as a sign of the upcoming end times and decided it was time to kick it into high gear with step two. Train the compound dwellers for battle. So Michael knew he had to prepare his ragtag group of sovereign citizens to lead the 12,000 troops that would fight for him during the Great War. So he began to train them using a mix of different methods. He began teaching the tactics he had learned from the former Green Berets and Tigerton Dells. However, as we've already covered, Michael wasn't the world's greatest student. So a lot of his lessons consisted of camo face painting. <laughs> it is camp. And shooting guns wildly into the nearby fields. Oh. I want a clown. I want a clown face. Yeah, what kind of, Put a star on my cheek. What kind of alternate reality type fucking carnival is this? I mean, nothing is more camp than a bunch of sweaty men together <laughs> painting their faces. I want a unicorn. I can't do that. Do you want desert storm camouflage? <laughs> I want the hot pink camouflage from the John Deere fleece p- blankets at Walmart. Oh my God, it's not a carnival. They only respect the, the authority of the county fair. <laughs> Corn dogs, funnel cakes, and painted faces with the face paint. Painted faces, paint your faces. Well, this has been a roller coaster of emotions. (laughs) This whole camp, I just imagined, have you ever seen like little kids doing what they think war is? (laughs) Like my brother had guns, not real ones, like fake plastic ones. And his friends would come over and they would wear camo and they go play in the forest. Where they make the gun sounds. Uh, 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 And then it's like a fight. It's like, no, I shot you. No, I did dodged it like the whole that's the whole thing lightning bolt that's lightning bolt no i have a shield and it, def- it defends me from all no, bullets my bullets are my faster than a shield i and have then a he, like, bulletproof fight. vest that's just a traffic vest derek and then it's just them rolling in the dirt like oh i dodged it and they did not like <laughs> they're just dirty sweaty and clearly visible <laughs> Dirty, sweaty, and clearly visible should be the name of this group, by the way. Dirty, sweaty, clearly visible. The compound story. <laughs> okay, so in an attempt to get his followers pumped up, he would pack his men into the living room of the main house on the compound and make everyone smoke a bunch of weed. And then listen to jock jams. Uh, pretty close. Because when have y'all were- heard Freebird? Freebird's my anthem. I have been through a breakup. 
he would get his troops nice and high, and then he would force them to watch sermons on tape that he got from the posse commentators. Oh, see, I was picturing that he was going to be like, let's all listen to Kiss, y'all. You know how much we love face painting. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, ah, want to rock and roll with (laughs) wine. And not everybody. Yeah. Um. But Michael knew what his soon-to-be soldiers really needed was a training video. But but where on earth was he going to find a training video that would teach a group of Midwesterners to fight an invading government force? Well, the next thing Michael spent his stolen cow money on was multiple trips to the theater to watch the 1984 film Red Dawn. Get the fuck out! I was... Okay, so I'm so sorry. It's okay. I... The, the, I was like trying to, I was like, what's that movie? Wolverines? Because that's exactly yep. these people. Yes. If you're unfamiliar with Red Dawn, it is a movie about a group of teenagers in Midwestern America who defend their town from invading Soviet forces. Give me your arm. I need to ask Yahweh if I want butter on my popcorn or not. <laughs> but it, it, he used it as a training video. And when I say multiple, they, they watched this movie... At least, minimum, as a group, 14 times. Wow. The most I've ever seen a movie in theaters was I saw in Glorious Bastards, I think, seven times. <laughs> Damn. I love that movie. It's a good it's a movie. I've movie. watched it several times. After a few months, Michael had his followers thinking and acting like soldiers. They were always armed. They would regularly patrol the outskirts of the compound looking for Jewish spies. And even the children were prepared for war as they would run around the compound yelling, Wolverines! Wolverines! (laughs) That's not a bit. That's what they did. They would yell, Wolverines! And Michael was like, we're not Wolverines, we're posse comitatus. And they'd be like, Wolverines! Wolverines are way cooler than possums. I've definitely yelled Wolverines just in the middle of like a scavenger hunt or some shit. I used to yell it while riding my bike. (laughs) Uh, after about a year, a year of living on the compound, Michael's flock was ready for Armageddon. The only problem was that Armageddon was fucking not coming. <laughs> Michael had promised, that's probably not the only thing not coming on the compound, by the way. Hey! Uh, Michael had promised the end times, but so far the group had just been getting high and watching Red Dawn, which honestly sounds, sounds like a fucking great. dream. Yeah. That sounds real That fun. sounds fucking dope. In, and in addition to the group not seeing any real progress towards the end of the world, they were watching what looked like the end of the Posse Comitatus. Michael's mentor, James Wickstrom, had been convicted and sentenced to jail time. And other compounds like Michael's were being raided and shut down basically every week. I get shut down. <laughs> and I, I open up again. <laughs> You're never going to keep me down. I get the... Yep. <laughs> Michael Ryan was a talker. He's the dude that makes up outlandish stories to impress people because his life is fucking boring. That's the kind of guy we see time and time again when we cover these sovereign citizen movements. And one of the reasons Michael garnered so much respect from his followers and his friends in the posse was because he was part of the 80% that were veterans. Although, Michael completely left out the part about how he never saw actual combat. According to Michael, he was a bloodthirsty killer in Vietnam who went on to work with the CIA. Michael said his work with the agency, which mostly involved assassinations, by the way, had to be kept so secret that the reason there was no record for it was because his military records in Fort Bragg had, fucking fitting title, had to be burned and they set his, his age 
stage back four years to cover up his role in secret military operations. Wow. You wouldn't know about my military operations. They went to a different country. She's in Canada, but she's definitely real. <laughs> yeah, so that was his story. They were like, if you ever need to look it up, you can't because my uh, operations are so secret that uh, the CIA had to burn them. Also, again, according to Michael, his murderous work had not stopped. He bragged about still being on the payroll and carrying out CIA assassinations on a weekly basis. What he would do, and this is not a bit, he would leave the compound check into a motel in town and just smoke weed for a whole weekend, cut himself with his own knife, and then just come back being like, yeah, that was a tough one. That was really hard. Jeez. He also apparently, uh, he told everyone that he had mafia connections and that he had mafia. Yeah, he's from Tony, Kansas. (laughs) (laughs) That he had mafia hitmen who would kill anyone if he made the call. You know the famous corn mafia of Nebraska? (laughs) They cornered the ethanol market. <laughs> they corned. Cornered. 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 Ah. <laughs> the only thing Michael talked more about than killing was pussy. Yay. Never seen one. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Ryan talked about pussy 24-7. How much he loved it. How much he'd had. How good he was around it. Michael bragged about being a sex god who could dick down pussy once and have it addicted to him. And by the way, I'm not a scientist, but there is a direct correlation between how much you talk about pussy and how less it's likely that you've ever made anyone come ever in your life. True. Accurate. Michael used fear to keep the women and children in line and admiration to keep his men loyal to him. Basically, the women and children were like, I think he's going to kill me. And the men were like, I heard he fucks, dude. You know how much he talks about pussy? He must know one. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes I pet it. I give it a bath. I clean its litter box. I love pussy. Why have I been calling it pussy this whole time? I'm a cat. Anyway, uh, of course, the more they realize that Michael's arm test may not have been a real way to talk to God. No, really? What? And that the posse was crumbling outside of their compound, they started to doubt that anything the man who called himself the Archangel said was true. So Michael Ryan decided it was time to stop waiting for Armageddon and skip to step three, forming his own kingdom. Michael assigned ranks to his new tribe of Israel. He appointed himself as the king of Israel and his oldest son, the 15-year-old Dennis Ryan, Dennis. as the prince of Israel. He named Rick Stice and James Haverkamp as his high priests. However, he had a new name for the four women in his tribe, the Queens of Israel. And he was the king of queens of Israel. <laughs> oh, God, he kind of does look like Kevin James. Fuck. What, really? Yeah, he's just this big fucking fat guy. Well, I guess now he has a, well, at the end he had a beard. But, all right, anyway, the queens consisted of Ruth Ryan, Michael's actual wife, Maxine Haverkamp, James's mom. Yikes. Cheryl Gibson, James's sister, and Lisa Stice, James's other sister, but also... Rick Stice's new wife. So essentially, after Rick lost his wife and he moved on to the compound, the only people he had any connection with were other people on the compound. And he met there Lisa, who is James Haverkamp's little sister. And they kind of fell in love with each other and they got married to each other. And... Michael was not very happy about that, so he separated the men and women and called Rick's new wife 
his queen of Israel. It shouldn't come as a surprise that no one was happy with Michael insinuating that he now had four wives, but no one was angrier than his new high priest, Rick. Last week, we covered the tragic story of how Rick lost his wife to the alternative medicine used by Posse Comitatus. But now, he was losing his new wife to a man he thought was a prophet. But Michael had a strict rule for his tribe. Don't think, don't question, just believe. Well, and if you're, if you're kind of going through these training drills all the time, you don't have as much time to think. Like, this is like, you know, you have sleep deprivation, yeah. you have all these things happening that are changing the chemistry of your body and the time you have to question things. They're also completely separated. So men and women sleep separately. Men sleep in the barracks, women sleep in the house with Michael. No. Oh, no. Yeah. If anyone had doubts about Michael, it meant that they doubted the Heavenly Father, Yahweh. And doubting Yahweh came with heavy punishments. How old are the is are these women? Because they... Because when that lady... 20s, 30s, 50s. Okay, so they're adults They're all different least. ages. Okay. Yeah, they're all different women. And doubting Yahweh came with heavy punishments. And this rule didn't just apply to the adults in the group. One of Michael's biggest enemies during his time on the compound was a five-year-old child named Luke Stice. Luke was Rick's son with his first wife, and he was only three when he lost his mother and his home was converted into the compound. And the thing about children is that they have no filter. For example, when I was a kid, one time I was at a restaurant and I said the phrase, Hey, mommy, mommy, look at that fat man. And now I am a fat man cursed by the fat man's magic. That's how it happened. <laughs> Every fat person insulted a fat person as a child and then you become fat. And I did it several times. That's why I'm so fat. So they think something and then they say it. And Luke watched his father becoming subservient to a pot-smoking former truck driver. And it made him mad to his tiny little bones. So he began calling Michael a nickname he thought of all on his own, which was Mean Mike. Well, Mean Mike wouldn't abide by his nickname. So instead of making a change and trying to become a better and more compassionate leader, he began punishing a five-year-old child for being scared. Michael began calling Luke a dog and a mongrel, and when they would cross paths, he would shove or kick Luke out of the way. And if anyone did anything to try and stop Michael, they would be charged with days of fasting and repentance. Once, when Luke said he didn't believe in Yahweh, Michael filled a tub with ice-cold water and repeatedly dunked the boy's head in the water, bringing him up just before he drowned. He did this until Luke admitted that Yahweh was real. Luke, a five-year-old boy. Afterwards, Michael used a magic marker to write 666 on Luke's forehead, and he told all of his followers that Luke was in cahoots with Satan. But Michael wasn't the only one with a temper and a god complex. His oldest son, Dennis, the prince of Israel, began lording over his subjects just like his dad did. And one day, while Dennis was practicing shooting with another member, 26-year-old James Thim, which I'm sorry so many people are named James in this story. It's the 80s. It was the Midwest. Half the population is named James. Dennis had missed an easy shot, and James Thim was mocking him for it. And out of anger... Dennis began pointing his rifle at James and told him he could kill him if he wanted to. And then on accident, the rifle went off and Dennis shot James in the face. Oh my god! Cheney style. (laughs) Luckily, the bullet went right through James's cheek and he survived. Unluckily, however, when Michael found out what happened, he said Dennis wasn't to blame. Obviously, Yahweh was upset with James. Him being shot was a sign that the young man was having doubts. 
To punish James Thim, Michael beat him and sentenced him to fasting and repentance for three days. Oh no. After that, James Thim was beat regularly until Michael was told by the Heavenly Father that he was fully devoted again. And that time never came. James became weaker and weaker each time. And over the course of a few weeks, he became thin and gaunt like he was dying of some disease. Everyone on the compound lived in constant fear of the prophet turned tyrant. They feared that Michael was going to kill one of them, and soon Michael did just that. In March of 1985, after berating James Thim, Michael was heading out of the main house of the compound, but little Luke Stice stood in the hallway. Michael shoved Luke so hard that the five-year-old flew backwards and hit his head on a bookcase. The boy, bleeding from his head wound, passed out immediately. Michael took the boy and locked him up in the room. <gasps> when Rick Stice begged to take his son to the hospital, Michael told him that it wasn't Yahweh's will. Rick tried to get Luke, and as a punishment, Michael chained Rick to the porch overnight. In the morning, the tribe was informed by Michael that Luke had died. Michael forced Rick Stice, Luke's own father, and James Thim to dig the boy's grave. Michael stood over the two men and laughed the whole time. Oh my god. After the death of Luke Stice, Michael Ryan's punishments came more frequently and without provocation. He was no longer trying to get his followers to believe that Yahweh was leading them to war. He was a sadistic fuck who enjoyed lording over his subjects. Rick Stice was regularly chained to the porch and forced to do all of the chores on the compound. James Thim was subjected to regular beatings, and when Michael wanted to be entertained, he'd forced James to have sex with a goat. Oh my god. The goat oh, was so geez. regularly abused that when reporters came to the farm later, they said the goat would rub up against all of the men's thighs. Michael's sadistic torment of James Thim continued until April of 1985. When the tribe was eating a wild turkey they caught for dinner, Michael noticed the bird tasted weird. Using the arm test, Michael learned from Yahweh that James, who was fasting and therefore not allowed to eat, had poisoned the meat. This is... I don't think I need to say this, but he didn't... He definitely didn't do it. Right, the bird right. was just probably bad. To punish James, Michael chained him up in the old hog shed, beat him, sodomized him with the handle <gasps> of a shovel. Oh my god. Shot off all of his fingers with <gasps> his pistol. Oh my god. And then instead of killing James Thim quickly or with any sort of dignity, the six foot two, two hundred and thirty-five pound Michael Ryan began stomping on James' chest until his rib cage caved in and the man died of internal bleeding. Oh my god. The body of James Thin was buried next to the hogshed he died in, and if anyone asked, Michael instructed James Thin had moved to Texas. Jeez. So far we've covered some of the most horrifying crimes that we've ever had to cover on the show. But how did the compound come to an end? The other compounds set up public roadblocks, and they interfered with locals' daily lives. But the Rulo compound was relatively self-contained. We'll remember the story of Cheryl Gibson. Three years ago, in 1982, she left her husband, Lester, and took her children, and he hadn't seen any of them since. But Lester was a really good dad, and worried for the safety of his children, who he knew were living somewhere with a big dumb racist, he started looking for Cheryl Gibson. The day after Cheryl left town with his children, Lester went to the sheriff's office to report them missing. Unfortunately, Cheryl had told her family that she was leaving Lester, so initially there was nothing the law could do. But Lester did not give up easily. Lester went to Whiting, Kansas, where Michael Ryan lived, 
but he just found Michael's old house abandoned. He did some asking around and found out that Michael had been calling Cheryl his new wife. The only problem was that Ruth was still Michael's wife. So after relaying to the sheriff in Kansas that Michael may or may not have been guilty of polygamy, the sheriff gave Lester the names of the men who helped Cheryl move in the dead of the night as the strange activities had been reported to the police. The vehicles on the Gibson property that night belonged to Rick Stice and James Thim of the small town of Rulo, Nebraska. Lester visited Rulo and went to the sheriff's office. He gave the sheriff the names of the late night movers and instantly the sheriff knew who the men were. The men lived on a compound on the outskirts of town and reports from neighbors were coming in of automatic weapons being fired and the menacing military-style patrols threatening the neighboring farms. Unfortunately, the lawmen didn't have a reason to visit the farm until now because for the past several weeks cheryl gibson had been denying lester visitation this in addition to taking the children to a new state without the court's permission meant that she was breaking the law local sheriffs began visiting the rulo compound which may have been what was heightening michael ryan's paranoia every time the law enforcement officers came he ordered cheryl gibson and her children to hide but lester wasn't betting it all on one horse he got in contact with a cult d programmer from california named ted patrick ted patrick had a lot of experience with locating and helping deprogram members of another cult popping up all over the u.s at the time the moonies oh hey wow so ted helped lester report his children as missing and the search officially began because of lester and ted's dedication the rulo compound was under constant surveillance police reporters people who were connected with lester's story began watching the compound at all hours of the day and because of the constant supervision and dealing with the punishments of increasingly unhinged michael ryan the compound dwellers were getting exhausted so exhausted that they couldn't focus on their work whether it be daytime or night work during an operation to steal a sprayer james haverkamp and another of michael's followers were pulled over and arrested for theft they had failed their orders to be never taken alive police sheriffs and u.s marshals made their way to the compound on rulo too many to take in a firefight even if all of michael's men weren't already in custody dead or chained to the porch and when law enforcement officers raided the home the compound dwellers were forced to give up peacefully the presence of cheryl gibson who michael had initially told sheriffs was not there thousands of dollars worth of stolen farm equipment and illegally modified automatic weapons it was all enough to arrest everyone on the compound on the night of the arrests lester gibson was present and he was finally after three years reunited with his children that's awesome i mean like not everything that led up to it that's horrifying but i'm glad that he has his children it's so fucking great it was one of those things where like everything at the end is so brutal and horrifying that it's almost heartwarming that the entire three years of that nightmare in rulo this is happening where it's just like a dad who's like i'm not giving up on finding my fucking kids oh he's like the liam neeson yeah Mm -hmm. it's literally taken in america same amount of racism oh yeah for sure well let she left lester because she was like i found a great group of white supremacists and he was like we have black friends cheryl (laughs) so this is like taken if instead of jumping off of yachts and shooting guns he was like so i so i just forgot to fill out form number 152 okay so i'll just do that do you have a pen does anyone have a pen finally glad that the nightmare and rulo was over michael's flock immediately gave him up for all of the crimes that he had committed great the risk of jail time was nowhere near as scary as spending another day with him on the compound 
James Haverkamp was convicted of second-degree assault in the death of James Thim, carrying a concealed weapon and possession of stolen property. He was sentenced to 26 years in prison. Dennis Ryan, the Prince of Israel, was tried as an adult and found guilty of second-degree murder in the death of James Thim. He was sentenced to life in prison, but... Eventually, he denounced his father and served 11 years with notably good behavior and was released. In prison, he graduated high school, he got a bachelor's degree, and he took courses in business administration, and now he currently works as a paralegal. So, he basically was like, from the ages of 12 to 15, my dad taught me every day that everyone that wasn't white was evil. And I believed him because he said that the war was coming. But after we got arrested, I realized that there was no war coming. And in prison, he met people that weren't white, and he got along with them. So he totally reformed himself in 11 years and came out a pretty well-reformed member of society. Nice. Rick Stice received a six-month jail sentence, 18 months of house arrest, and five years probation on theft charges for stealing cattle. After completing his sentence, he moved to Missouri while his children went into the custody of the Nebraska Social Services. In 1992, he was allowed custody of his youngest daughter. Cheryl Gibson underwent formal deprogramming and reunited with her husband, Lester. Charges against her for kidnapping of her and Lester's children were dropped. In 1999, though... They divorced again. Uh, That's fair. Although, Saw that one yeah. Coming, yeah. although hopefully this time it was over something other than white supremacy. Yeah. Well, it's really hard. Like the whole forgive and forget thing is yeah. like, it's really hard to forget that you like cheated on me and stole our children and joined a cult. It's yeah. Like, it's also 1999. So it's probably like, you don't hate Mexicans enough. You know, it's probably just changing with the times. Uh, Michael Ryan was convicted of a multitude of different crimes, including the murder of Luke Stice and James Thim. He was sentenced to death on September 12, 1985. And while he never denounced his beliefs, his beliefs denounced him. His mentor, James Wickstrom, told reporters that Michael Ryan did not speak for Yahweh and that his actions were disgusting. James Wickstrom, by the way... Gave this report from his own prison cell. <laughs> which is, that's like the pot calling the kettle black, which, by the way, is the worst thing you can call a white supremacist. Well, <laughs> the thing is, is, if you're in solitary confinement, there's no one to do the arm test on, so how would he know? <laughs> that's very fair. Guard, guard, no touching. <laughs> The farm on Rula, Nebraska was torn down. Little of what sat there before remains. The lands became the property of the federal government. <laughs> it was one last Suck it. It was one last little fuck you to the sovereign citizens that turned the land into a living, breathing nightmare. And that is the compound on Rula, Nebraska. That poor goat. <sighs> yeah. The yeah. The goat Oh, man, I was going to say the go got fucked on that one, but that is not an appropriate thing no, to say. It wasn't no. even a joke. It was I just... mean, also the murders. It's all horrifying, but I'm, think, I'm yeah. glad that Lester's kids got out. I think any t- like murder is always hard, but these ones were so incredibly sadistic, and yeah. especially the sadistic abuse of a child is just yeah. like, deeply yeah. upsetting. This you... one feels like the American version of Ant Hill Kids. Like, it's yeah, not... I was going to say, you weren't here for Ant Hill Kids? No, I wasn't. <sighs> it's not as bad but that saying that out loud is like oh god but it really kind of is yeah and hill kids was rough yeah that one was rough uh man so we we got a question a while back about 
whether or not researching cults affects our psyche or or gives us like or our mental health in ways and i kind of wanted to take a second to like debrief by talking about this because andrea and i talked about it before there's episodes like this one where we there's such intense violence but the other thing to remember is that every single person involved whether they be the aggressors or the victims literally would hate me because of the color of my skin so it's like not only do i have to put myself in a place of understanding their fucking racist ass thoughts but i also have to sympathize with them even still and also just read i read a book today and yesterday that was 352 pages of great detail and i kind of skimmed past some of the great detail in the murders because i didn't want to like dwell on it anymore because it kind of hurts a kind of part of you dies when you research like this yeah i've only done two episodes and i only did incels but um, spending a month researching an organization and reading words every day that talk about how horrible women are it it made me really upset and it also made me take things that men said to me more personally because I'm you're reading and you're internalizing all of this hatred for you just because of what you are and it gets into your spirit like it 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 made me really sad I was I mean Armando can tell you I was a lot more emotional that month and I was like more like we do stand-up and there is misogyny and stand-up like a lot of it like all the time yeah and it makes it even harder when you realize that there are like incel comics and it makes you so much less tolerant of their bullshit when you realize like you literally just hate me for existing and you think i'm less than you and that is really hurtful you know i have to actively restrain myself from getting in facebook fights with people all day long because it now i mean it frustrated me before but more than anything now, it frustrates me when people blindly believe something that is easily proved false. It is so frustrating. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Question yeah. shit. Question shit all the time. Do research. We do. Yeah. Well, yeah, mostly fucking, Armando and Paige. <laughs> I fucking, I'm the stupidest motherfucker I know. And even I do the research. Come on. Yeah. Just, I mean, stuff like, oh, God, the president more than anything drives me crazy. Where he'll say something on the news and I'm like, that's not true. Like, we could prove it's not true. Right yeah. the second. Like, he is a cult leader. And I can't... It drives me insane every every day. Yeah. I hate him. What do you... What Come you, at me, FBI. I don't give a <laughs> shit. I think they're on your side on this one. Yeah, you're probably right on that. What, do you, what are your thoughts as far as, uh, like, your mental health when you dive into groups like this? Either groups that kind of hate you or groups that just, like of extreme violence and like dark dark shit to be honest one of the hardest ones in a long time was the larry ray one was that Mm -hmm. the alaska one no that was tough too but no the larry ray one where they were just like normal kids and then three of them have just fucking disappeared like that shit that was a college one right yeah the college one that shit that one we did like two weeks like two weeks that bothered me a lot and felt really well that one's so scary because it's just like oh these could have been my friends like it's so modern and like 
it could have been me. Like that's ve- yeah. it's really scary. Yeah, when I was when I was 18 years old, I was willing to leave everything and go on the road with a guy who said that he was organizing a comedy tour. Like I was 100% ready to go cuz I was like, "Oh, this is how comedy works. I did it. I'm 3 months in and somebody said I'm good enough to go on the road." Yeah. Um, but yeah, it it can happen to anyone. That's the thing is like, we're, I think we're less susceptible to people's bullshit because of the constant state of having to be like, can you believe that people think this is okay? Yeah. Even so, like the more that we research, the more that I believe that there's a cult out there for everyone. Oh, yeah, And, And I don't mean that in like a, Hey, it could be everybody kind of. I mean that in, like, regardless of who you are or how tough you think you are or how smart or, you know, in, like, how much you think that you won't fall for bullshit, mm-hmm. there is one for everybody. There's There will be a group or even just a person, because that's the thing. It doesn't always have to start as a group. It always starts with one person. Yeah. And there can be that one person that just speaks to you in a way that makes you stop questioning what you know to be true. Well, I think we've all, like, I've definitely been in relationships where my partner's version of the truth, once I step away, is not what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's had those friendships where you look back and you're like, why did I take that? Yeah. Why did I let that person talk to me or treat me like that when I know that I am... I am better. I should not have to. And like relationships too. I feel like domestic violence and cults go hand in hand. I feel like they're very much the same monster. And I feel like for me, some of the scariest cults are the ones where it is like one person. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like that's how they get people. You have like an existing relationship with somebody. And then it just turns into a nightmare. And before you know it, your life as you knew it is gone yeah two 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 points really the first one is like to your to your extent of like everyone can fall for cults like a lot of times we see people fall into cults who have just had something traumatic happen to them yeah they're in a tough spot yeah like rick stop rick stice almost exactly he was like i lost his wife he didn't even really believe in the shit he was just like this is the only community i have well, like, even that Larry Ray episode, that one yeah. guy that was like, I had nowhere to live in New York, and that's how I joined a cult. I needed an apartment. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing, too, is, is like, some cults start out as, like, great movements. Like, we've said it time and time again, uh, Jonestown, the, 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 the great people's, intentions. people's Temple was great at the beginning at the beginning it was real good yeah if, you, if you're on the beginning of the ride it's awesome but then it's tough to get off yeah and it and it the more you give that's the thing it's all about little little give-ins you know what i yeah, mean it's, it's little compromises it's really just a abusive relationship at the scale of a community yeah it's a macro yeah. it's an abusive relationship on a macro scale and you start making small compromises and once you've made those small ones, larger ones don't seem so big because you've already made small ones. And yeah. gradually you find yourself in a place where you no longer have any control. What's mm-hmm. the investment fallacy? What's that called? Where like, oh, I've put this much time into this thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. If, you've, if you've invested a certain amount of time or X into a thing, you're going to see it through. 
that's the yeah that's the thing of like if you've watched if there's a 15 minute video and you've watched 13 minutes it's like you're gonna watch the last two minutes yeah right? Right. for the most part so if you like moved cities to be with this cult or you moved cities to be with this guy or went to a different country and stopped talking to your whole family like it's harder to walk away from that because you've invested so much. Well, yeah. think of literally everyone we know who lives here. We all moved here from somewhere else, and <laughs> except for you. You fucking losers. And, and the, your choice eventually becomes, do I go home and give up on everything I worked for for 10 plus years or whatever, how long you've been here, or do I stay and hope that something happens? Am I stupid for staying? Am I stupid for going? And you see so many people afraid of being looked at as a failure. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Or being looked at as you were wrong. Yeah. Like you decided that this is what you wanted to do and you were wrong. Mm-hmm. And it is very hard to admit that you're wrong. Yeah. Well, I don't have a funny joke for it this week. It seems almost <laughs> inappropriate, but Open Skies Trading Company is a great company that sells products like t-shirts, posters, as well as dog collars and other accessories. And one of the coolest things that they do is for every purchase you make, they will donate $1 to the National Parks Foundation. Maybe if we get enough uh, dollars, we can make the uh, the Rulo compound a national park and just put a, a big goat statue on it and just one for goat. <laughs> Come on. All for one and one for goat. <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, that was bad. Anyway, so, yeah. Open Skies Training Company. They're on openskiestradingcompany.com. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram at Open Skies Trading Co. That's Open Skies Trading C-O. If you want to send me things to make me feel better. Uh, <laughs> Mostly corn dogs, hot corn dogs, dogs, cheeses, meat sticks. That's what he likes. If you know an L.A.-based face painter that will paint my face for free, all of our faces I'm right do. here. I'm right here. Oh, yeah. Do it with lead-based paint for me. No. Please. And thank what? you. If you want to kill me. No, shouldn't say that. Uh, if you want to paint my face or other things, you can follow me online on Instagram. Should I leave? <laughs> Instagram and Twitter at Mondo Does Stuff. That's M A N D O Does Stuff. You can also find all my show dates on MondoDoesStuff.com. Um, if you live in Texas and you can procure Bucky's Beaver Nuggets for me, <laughs> please hit me up at Page Wesley on Twitter or at Rampage Wesley on Instagram. Beaver Beaver Nuggets. Another it sounds. Uh, it sounds like beaver nuggets could also be said as vagina balls. I Gladly. If they taste the same, <laughs> I'll eat your vagina balls. I don't give a shit. Don't isolate that audio, please. Oh, I Let feel me... like Rose Battle could use that. There we go. <laughs> if you want to be my Pokemon friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's how it starts. This is a cult. Uh, if you want to add me on Pokemon Go and you want to see the shiny Melotic, Melotic? I can't say it. I've only read it. That I just uh, evolved that I'm really excited about. Uh, hit me up. My trainer code is 63988127 And if you follow me on the social media at Sundress Comic or at uh, Andrea Gazetta, you can look at my art and show me your Pokemon. You can also find uh, my Pokemon trainer code is uh, 8675309. My trainer code is butts. Add me. Yeah. And if you like our show, you can follow us on Instagram at Colt Podcast. Andrea's playing Pokemon right now. It's a rare one. 
Or on Twitter at Cult Podcast Show. You can also send us an email to cultpodcastshow at gmail.com. Or if you want to send me those sweet, sweet beaver nuggets. Sweet beaver nuggets. Sweet, sweet beaver nuggets. Or if you can somehow package and send Torchy's Tacos Queso, I'm not going to ask questions. I'll take the Diablo sauce as well. You can send those to 3756 West Avenue 40, Suite K, number 237. Like Like the Shining. Shining. Los Angeles, California, 90065. And you can find all of those addresses on our website, which is cultpodcastshow.com. And hey, guys, we're still promoting a fucking live show. Live show. If you want to come see us. I'm sorry, what was that? I was going to say bring us beaver nuggets, but it's in San Diego, so they probably can't get them. <laughs> bring us an actual beaver. Um, we'll squeeze it till the nuggets come out. <laughs> if you, uh, <laughs> you want to see an hour and a half of some of the best research and funniest jokes that we've ever uh, crafted, I guess. I bought a projector and a projection screen. Don't make me regret this. Don't do it. Tickets are selling fast. Yeah, tickets are actually selling pretty fast. So you can find tickets for $10 ahead of time or $15 at the door, and you can do so at cultpodcastshow.com slash San Diego, or you can go to cultpodcastshow.com and head over to the show's page. And because tickets are selling fast, be sure to get them in advance if you can, because I don't want you guys to miss out. So make sure that you have seats reserved and it costs you less money. Get them in advance on our website. Hell yeah, dog. Can't wait to see you. Come and get it. <laughs> get it. Uh, yeah. I think for this one, I'm going to say don't drink the face paint. <laughs> I know it's water soluble and it's non-toxic, but don't do it. <laughs> don't drink paint. And don't drink the Kool-Aid. Bye. Bye. <laughs> No, I already did. No. <laughs>